0: Hey, everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how these might shape how we think about love, happiness and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can learn more about me or my research online at JenniferAnnFrey.com or you can find me on social media, on Twitter, at Jen Frey, or on Instagram, at Professor Essa Frey. In today's episode, titled Walker Percy on Being Lost in the Cosmos, I speak with professor and literary critic Jessica Hooten Wilson about Walker Percy's dystopic sci-fi novel, Love in the Ruins. I hope you can grab yourself a bottle of early times and enjoy our conversation. As some of our listeners know, I recently did my own deep dive into the world of Walker Percy, so I am really thrilled to have a legit Percy expert on the podcast today, Professor Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Wilson.
1: Thank you. Legit expert, I like that.
0: Yeah, no, you're completely (laughs) legit. Professor Wilson is the author of three books, Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov. That came out in 2016. Walker Percy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the Search for Influence that came out in 2017, and most recently, A Guide to Walker Percy's Novels, which just came out in 2018, and currently she is preparing Flannery O'Connor's unfinished novel, Why Do the Heathen Rage, for publication. I want to ask you about that. I didn't know she had an unfinished novel.
1: Not very many people do know that she had an unfinished novel, but her previous authorized biographer had gone through all of her papers, and he was in his 90s or 80s when he found it, and he told me, like, I'm not going to get around to preparing this for publication, so I think you should
0: do this. Wow. So do you, do you have a publisher yet? Is it?
1: Well, I, I think that Ferris, Joss, and Giroux always gets the first right of refusal, so, yeah, it's a long time coming project. I mean, it was um, it's like 375 pages of unfinished material that I've gone through over the last five years. So, um, it's yeah, it's got a lot of work to be done to be exactly right so that we, what we add to her, you know, great body of work doesn't taint it but actually adds to it. So,
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's exciting. Why don't you tell us who Walker Percy was? And what drew your own attention to his work?
1: Sure, Walker Percy was a Catholic novelist in the middle of the 20th century, and it's somewhat humorous that when I met my husband, I was already a professor, and he assumed I worked with Old English, and I had to tell him, "No, I mostly study mid 20th century American novelists." <laughs> so people that you know were bestsellers and um, you know winning national book awards like Percy did with his first novel. So Walker Percy drew me to his fiction mostly because of his sense of humor. He was funny and easy to read. I never thought of studying him. That happened almost by accident because I was very interested in the way that the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky was affecting Southern writers. They seemed much more drawn to his work than they were to any previous American novelist when they were, um, when you talk about their influences and Percy is probably the greatest example of this, and so it was an accident because I just discovered in his archives how much he had drawn from Dostoevsky, and then it turned into a career of studying Walker Percy rather than just enjoying him, which is um, how I began reading his fiction it was just for fun.
0: <laughs> so I think I think Love in the Ruins is his yeah. funniest novel.
1: <laughs> I think it is the funniest for where we are right now. It, I mean, it's written in 1971, and yet. Um, it it reads as though we're reading it about like the 2016 presidential election or something. It just seems the most apt to where we are.
0: I'm not sure if what the first Percy novel you read was, but like the moviegoer I think of is sort of like very serious and earnest. And then Love in the Ruins is this completely different thing, completely different genre, although, you know, the the themes are very much similar. So could you tell us a little bit about Love in the Ruins as a novel, sort of compared to his other novels, what makes it distinctive and what makes it a little bit difficult sometimes to read?
1: Well, I think that you were asking me what I read first. I read actually The Thanatos Syndrome first. So I think this is, a, this is an interesting way to kind of situate his work because you mentioned The Movie Goer, which was his first novel. And then I read Thanatos Syndrome, which was his last, but it's the sequel to Love in the Ruins, which is kind of there in the middle of his six novels. And um, so what you see with Thanatos Syndrome is he's writing almost like this mystery. It's written almost like television episodes. And I mean, Percy died in 1990. So his his style from his first novel in 61 to when he died, right? Uh, Thanatos was 89. And just so much changes over the course of his novel career, because he wasn't trained as a novelist, he was actually trained as a physician. And so when he started writing novels, he was trying to imitate people before him to learn how to write well, because he never went to school for writing. And so the movie goer, you really can see that, like, here is someone who's trying to write, like all the books, that are winning awards that are doing well. And so, so the movie goer is a novel of manners. It reads almost like a French existentialist novel. I mean, he's just imitating. And, um, but what he discovered was that the reason he was writing novels was really about conversion. I mean, he became a Christian from reading novels and then he wanted to write novels To convert people. I mean, he really says that flat out that he wants to be an ass kicker for Jesus is what he says. Um, So he wants, yeah, he wants to be a moralist. I mean, that's what he was trying to do. And so his second novel, he tries to do that a little bit more, The Last Gentleman. And by the time you get to the third novel, he thinks that he has found the right genre for 1970s to be able to kick people's asses towards Jesus. And um, so this novel is is audacious um he writes this great essay called um novel writing at the end of the world in which he says like i'm going to be a prophet and i'm just going to write in these extremes um almost with the hope that the way that we are destroying ourselves and destroying the world will not come to pass like if i can give you the darkest vision of the future that i can come up with in 1971 then maybe we won't actually end up there, right? And so it's a very strange novel because it's written in extremes. And it's science fiction. It's set in 1983, so it's very dystopic. You know, Brave New World was on his mind. Um, Just this idea of this reality in the future that um, is dark and filled with extreme political parties. And um, even the setting becomes almost you know, Dante's afterlife, right? Like there's extremes of paradise, extremes of hell. Yeah. So
0: yeah, it's interesting to me that you mention Huxley's Brave New World. I just taught this in my medical ethics class. And, and I think the same thing. I think he was extremely influenced by Huxley. But I sort of think that Love in the Ruins is satire. Do you agree? Oh,
1: 100%. And satire in the the right sense, not just of making fun of things um, as an in and of itself, but making fun of our foibles in order to kind of show us, wait, could we be better? Could things be better if we um, maybe got rid of some of these sacred cows that we're holding on to and lifting up?
0: That's right. And I think somewhere he says something like um, people who satire is written in the mode of hope um and he also says at some point uh something to the effect that what the what the good satirist exploits are the slips in our language sort of like they find these corruptions the way that like language has been corrupted and and sort of exploit this um and i and i think that's something that i'm not sure that i would call a brave new world satire but Brave New World definitely um, is exposing these sort of like <laughs> slips of language that were already present in his time, and he's just sort of like taking them to their uh, logical extremes, I guess. Um, yeah. So, so Love in the Ruins is a is a kind of dystopian sci-fi satire. I think it's hilarious. I sort of like laugh out loud uh every time i read this novel um so let's talk about the main character uh one dr tom moore what's up with him
1: well tom
0: moore when the novel
1: opens he is a um physician but he's not really an esteemed tom moore he's not like the 16th century martyred saint in that sense he's not um Someone with a great reputation. In fact, he's more like an underground man in the middle of the 20th century. He um, is sitting in front of like a tumored pine and he's afraid that people are trying to kill him with snipers, right? That people have rifles pointed at him. And um, so he's holding his own rifle in his lap. And He's an alcoholic, so he's drinking early times whiskey. He's sitting there, alcoholic, holding a gun, afraid people are shooting at him, while he overlooks a Howard Johnson motel where he has three women stored away in different rooms who don't know about one another, um, with canned goods, of course, more early times, and then a collection of great books. Uh, So when we're introduced to Tom Moore, we're like, wait a second. You have the name of a saint, but you seem incredibly crazy. (laughs) <laughs> right, at the opening of the novel, you're not really sure, like, do you need medical attention? Like, is this just the ramblings of a crazy person? I mean, it's almost like Edgar Allan Poe, the opening of Telltale Heart, like are we t- are we talking to someone that we can really believe their story?
0: Well, he is crazy
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but you know, Percy points out in um, his essays, he says, you know we're living in an age where all of the sane people are acting crazy and all of the people who seem crazy to us may be the ones we're supposed to be listening to right like maybe they're the ones who actually can see things the way they are because the rest of us are living like we're walking on our heads yeah
0: so he so he is nuts um and he he has been institutionalized and what was the occasion of that
1: Right. He was, he was suicidal. He actually, it was Christmas Eve. Um, his daughter had died of cancer at 16 and, um, his wife left him for an Englishman and he was sitting at home drinking his favorite drink, which is like tang and duck eggs with vodka and uh, decides to slit his wrists. And And he says at that moment, he looks down at the blood on his wrists and feels alive and feels the desire to be alive. So he runs to a fellow doctor's house who bandages him up and then he gets institutionalized for his own safety. And he says he lives like a different person, that it's only through really recognizing that he had the choice to live or die that made him want to live again. And um, especially even being in the hospital, he also felt like for the first time he was living in a sane world to be in the hospital. And he'll say the same thing in Thanatos Syndrome, that when he was, he went to prison (laughs) later, (laughs) later in his life, not in Love in the Ruins, but he goes to prison later. Um, But he says only the prison seems sane, right? So all of these people that we kind of push to the margins of society, they seem to be working more with the grain of what it means to be human than, than the people kind of in the middle, the mass of people that seem insane, <laughs> really.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, suicide is is all throughout Walker Percy's novels. And of course, for our listeners who don't know about his biography both of his parents probably attempted suicide i mean his father definitely killed himself but his mother it sort of like looks like she also attempted her own life so he's he's playing around with this theme of suicide
1: well his his grandfather i mean many members going all the way back to the first percy actually like the first percy in america committed suicide at 91 so i mean this is this is a majority of percy's family and so this Percy says that his entire life goal was to figure out why his father killed himself and to make sure it didn't happen to him, right? That he's not a victim of suicide.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's really I think that's very common um for people um for people for whom suicide is like, you know, a, a family affair. Um yeah, it's, it's really common to uh, be really worried that this is something that's going to happen to you or something that's going to be tempting for you. And I think for Percy... Um, there you know were two kinds of suicide that were obviously related there's actual suicide where you kill yourself or you try to kill yourself but then there's something more like spiritual suicide um, which he thinks uh, maybe a lot of people are doing but they're not aware of it um, there's they're sort of like spiritually dead or spiritually killing themselves without being aware of it um, And so I think there's some of that in this novel as well.
1: Well, do you mind if I comment on that? Because I think it's a really important point, Jennifer. I think in Percy's fiction, you'll see this throughout. He, I mean, he would have loved movies like Shaun of the Dead, right? Where it's just a, it's a satire on our current state of being that we, we're all zombies. And um, so the moviegoer, I mean, Binks Bowling says everyone is dead, 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 right? Just walking around. And when you talk to people, you just feel like you're a dead person talking, Um, And the same thing happens to Tom Moore. He just feels like he is talking to dead souls, people that are just no longer alive and don't even know what it means anymore to be alive. So I think you've hit on something very poignant for what Percy's doing. He's trying to make sure that, you know, how do we make it through a Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m.? I mean, that was his big question for all of his life. And um, and it wasn't... um, He says it's a gift. It wasn't something of his own doing that helped him answer that question. He says he received it as a gift, a way to get through Wednesday at 2 p.m., that it was a gift of faith and then the vocation of being a novel writer. So those two things combined kind of moved him through his life.
0: Right. So how much do you think Tom Moore is standing in for Walker Percy in this novel?
1: Yes and no. I think all of Percy's novel writing comes from himself right? I think this is, some people think this is the most autobiographical because you have a physician, which Percy was, right? And then you also have a bad Catholic, which Percy would have considered himself. Um, Percy did have a drink at five o'clock every afternoon. As soon as he finished writing, you know, he poured himself a bourbon. Um, and I, I think it was more like four fingers than two. And, um, you know, this was kind of a constant for him. Um, even his fascination with with women. He was devoted to bunt his wife for his whole life. Um, but he would always just, you know, these flirtations are always reported that Percy was just he was a charmer, you know. Um and so there are a lot of similarities between Tom Moore's character and Percy's character. So Tom Moore says this famous line in the book like I believe in God and the whole business, but I love women best, music and science next, whiskey next, God fourth and my fellow man hardly at all, and generally I do as I please. I think that Tom Moore is the extreme of Percy without his faith and without his family, because Percy would say, I believe in God and the whole business, and I love God first, and maybe novel writing second, right? Um, And whiskey and music and science and women later. Like, so he, he definitely overturns and makes Tom Moore more of an extreme of his sins, right? Than, than just a mirror of who he is
0: well speaking of women so there are as you said uh, three women in this uh, what is it a Howard Johnsons um, and these are sort of the three he's, he's kind of caught in this love triangle and the novel um, so why don't why don't we talk about these three women and
1: oh my goodness only <laughs> like only only a man in his 50s, right? Fantasizing about the idea of getting to have three women locked in three different rooms in a hotel. I mean, this is people always accuse Percy of not writing women well. And, and it is true in a large sense. He just writes these women as like his fantasy of what he wishes these women are. Um, I
0: agree. I totally agree.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I've always had problems with that reading Reading Percy's fiction. Um, you know, you see Ellen Oglethorpe as like a version of his wife Bunt. I mean, she's this Presbyterian girl. So like the same way that Bunt becomes, you know, this Catholic girl and um just keeps him stable, keeps him anchored, keeps him in reality. And eventually, of course, he'll marry her at the end of the novel, and then she appears again in the Thanatos syndrome, still as his wife. And um, so she's she's kind of that solid figure. And then you have Moira, who's a girl crush. I mean, just you imagine every high schooler or undergrad you've ever <laughs> known, and she's just kind of flippant, following with the streams of the time. This is the world she grew up in. She's one of those fish that doesn't, you know, ever think, "Hey, I'm living in water." Uh, she just kind of swims around with everything. Um, and then Lola, you have this kind of voluptuous, um, brazen, aggressive, like woman of the world kind of uh, character, right? That that he doesn't know what to do with that makes him somewhat uncomfortable um, and yet repulsed and attracted simultaneously. So yeah, these become the three different choices for him in some sense.
0: And he claims to be in love with all three of them.
1: <laughs> there you go with the the loss of language, right? The loss right. of meanings and words.
0: <laughs> right, because it's very clear that, I mean, there's a confusion between love and and erotic desire or lust or something like this. I mean, it's clear that he lusts after all three of them, um, but it's it's deeply unclear that he's really in love with any of them.
1: Well, and I wouldn't I wouldn't even say I wouldn't say lust. I think I think he's actually asking a question about what love is because there's lust with Lola with Moira. It's like this innocent kind of appeal for like a like a puppy love right? I mean, they constantly blush at each other and talk around things. And like it's um, it's a little bit more innocent. It's almost trying to get at this definition of like, okay, is love this? You know, this little game that you play with the opposite sex. And then there's Ellen, this almost, sacri- well, it becomes sacrificial, right? It becomes what love actually is. And so I think he's asking like, is love romance, like the romantics, right? 19th century idea of what love would be? Or is love just lust and physical, the way Lola would have it? Or is love something like the Presbyterian girl would have it, that it's a choice, it's willed,
0: it's practiced? That's right. Well, Ellen is, yeah, Ellen is very moralistic. I mean, I think that's sort of like the best way to describe her. Um, she's, you know, and I think at some point he says um, she believes in morality but not religion. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah she's the stoic character that he has in almost every novel this character who knows the right thing and then does it but can't remember the right. reason right that we do it
0: um and yeah. so maybe we should give a little bit of backstory about why they're in this hotel, why he thinks people are trying to kill him um and maybe also like he has this he has this larger ambition at least at the beginning of the novel actually like. It's maybe the first instance that he is crazy in some sense. Um, so he has these scientific ambitions. So maybe we should talk about that too.
1: Sure. I mean, the novel opens, and if I could just read the opening line, because it's so fantastic. Um, and it's a question, which is a great hook for readers, right? He just says, as a stylist, people always make fun of Percy's style. Like he was too much of a philosopher and not an aesthete but he writes well. And so if you pay attention, he just has his own style. You know, it's not the same as like the movie goer, but the opening of love in the ruins now in these dread latter days of the old violent, beloved USA and of the Christ forgetting Christ haunted death dealing Western world. I came to myself in a grove of young pines. And the question came to me, has it happened at last? Right. So it's just this, amazing opening. It almost sounds like a poem, but here he is thinking he's basically diagnosing the Western world and it is the time of Dante relived, right? I came to myself in a grove of pines. This is, you know, Dante, I came to myself in a dark wood, right? So it's the same, it's the same kind of opening. He's definitely trying to put things on the larger register, a higher register and, and set his story in a world in which politics have divided everything and the church is divided and the church is participating in this division. Same with like Dante's Italy. And so he imitates this great Catholic writer and you have the two sides of the political sphere being like the knotheads is the the new party, right? Think conservative. Um, These are, I think he says something like, they have these certain pathologies associated with them unseasonable rages and large bowel complaints. <laughs> and then you have on the other side, the liberals, the left Papas is the group. And it's, um, you know, they have their same kind of, their different pathologies, right? Um, sexual impotence, mourning, terror, abstraction of self from self. And then the Catholic church also is divided. You have the American Catholic church that emphasizes property rights and plays the star-spangled banner at the elevation of the host. <laughs> so everything is fragmented. Um, everything is an extreme more even alludes to the line from Yeats the Second coming, the sinner did not hold, and so the world that he is in is very divided, and so he thinks that he can fix everything by paying attention to these pathologies that people are experiencing um so he creates a qualitative quantitative ontological lapsometer, such a mouthful um and even like yeah his um his benefactor later in the novel says such a mouthful, but it's supposed to be a caliper of the soul. It's a stethoscope of the spirit is this metaphysical device that is able to, um, calibrate, you know, what's going on in your soul and the unseen parts of yourself and, um, cure, you know, your conservative extremes, your liberal extremes, your religious extremes. And that's what he's trying to do with um, this experiment. He wants to say, I mean, he has a very like Faustian or proud stance where he's just going to save everyone with this technology he created.
0: Right. I mean, his pride is, well, I mean, it's hilarious. Um, But I guess (laughs) reading it and I have this experience every time I read the novel. It's like, does this thing actually exist? No. Like, does he? Because like I try in my head to imagine this laptop yeah. and like yeah. I can't even do it. It's a sort of like half vacuum cleaner, half right. you know <laughs> like computer. I don't even know what it yeah. is because you never really <laughs> describe, describe what like or how it operates. Does it even exist?
1: I mean, it does in the reality of the fiction, and a lot of people have played with Percy scientists are drawn to Percy's work the way they're drawn to a lot of science fiction like could we do this like could we use electromagnetic waves to kind of figure out people's souls and like the unseen energy levels in people and um and and so Percy knows enough science to sound realistic but of course he's playing on science the fact that science can even approach something as unseen as the soul and diagnose this metaphysical part of ourselves, right? I mean, this is the fallacy of science when it becomes scientism, where it thinks that can actually calibrate things that it's just beyond its reach.
0: Right. And so, I mean, one way to read the novel, and I'm not sure that it's the right way at all, but one way to read the novel is to see it as a coming to greater knowledge about oneself, finally seeing that scientific materialism um, has its limits and that there's this kind of folly in trying to measure in this quantitative way or recalibrate at a physical level, you know, things that are obviously spiritual or moral.
1: And he does this in uh, his last self-help book, his nonfiction work, Lost in the Cosmos. I mean, the book itself is, it's a satire on our inability to kind of have a litmus test of the self, of who we are. And even the title Lost in the Cosmos is a play on our own paradigm where we think that we are in a cosmos, right? Instead of being a creature in a created order. And and then we're lost because we don't have a meaning for the word sin anymore. And we don't have an understanding of what it means to be fallen in this created order. So all of the old words will not be able to explain to us who we are because they've lost our meaning. And so Percy does the same thing in Love in the Ruins that he does in that later work, which is talk about us in new terms that maybe haven't been worn away from their meanings. And maybe we can see ourselves more clearly if we just change the words, right? Words that haven't lost that sense.
0: That's right. Um, So, I mean, but it's called a lapsometer, uh, which I take it as Percy being clever um, because it's sort of like, you know, um, the, this, the sense that we, that we do suffer some kind of massive catastrophe or that something is very wrong with us. Um, You know, this idea of being in a post-Lapsarian state Um, and yet he's trying to, he he seems to genuinely believe um, throughout most of the novel until the very end. I think he seems to genuinely believe that this is uh, this, that, that this this is the solution, right? That he is actually the savior, He's going to save people's souls with his lapsometer.
1: Yeah. Well, if you compare, and if you compare his prayer, again, he's a bad Catholic. So if you compare his prayer at the beginning of the novel with his prayer at the end of the novel, at the beginning of the novel, he prays, Lord, grant that my discovery may increase knowledge and help other men. Failing that, Lord, grant it will not lead to man's destruction failing that Lord grant that my article and brain be published before the destruction takes place. (laughs) So, you know, and that's the full of pride. And then of course, at the end, he prays like Sir Thomas More, greatest of all saints, save me. Right. And so then there's this humility and the need for salvation at the end. So you compare the two, like I'm going to save the world and then I need saving. I can't do it on my own. So that, that's really the trajectory of Tom Moore, the course, of the novel.
0: That's right. And earlier you sort of compared, you called him a, a Faustian figure. And of course, every Faust needs their Mephistopheles. And there is a very strange Mephistopheles in this novel. So let's talk about him.
1: Oh, he's fantastic. Art Immelman. Um, and he's a Mephistopheles, but I've also talked about elsewhere that he is a replay of Ivan Karamazov's Little Devil right? and that, and the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah, he models, Percy models after after that character. So you see in um, Ivan Karamazov, the devil is wearing kind of old clothes that don't really fit the times. Um, and of course, Art Immelman is wearing clothes that don't fit the times and don't really, so he's trying to fit in with the culture, but he's wearing stuff that's like 100 years old. Um, and Percy's like, that just, that's not really the fashion anymore. He seems kind of out of place. And um and not percy tom moore keeps mistaking this figure and just assuming he's a regular like jewish business salesman but things like his band deodorant uh he seems to wear a lot of it because he's actually trying to cover up the smell of sulfur that seems to linger in the air wherever he is um so and then and then he's always a reflection of percy i mean he seems to i'm not percy i keep saying percy like tom moore there you go the biography and autobiography like mixing Tom Moore can't see him for what he is he can't see him as the devil instead it's like oh you're giving me everything I desire you're going to make my invention um purchasable by everyone and people are going to know who I am and I'm going to have all this glorification from my invention and um and he uses language that Moore loves right like science to help all men Happy, joyous love to help women. We're speaking here of happiness, joy, music, spontaneity. I mean, these are the kind of speeches that he gives to, you know, rile up Tom Moore to be on his side.
0: He also is promising him fame and fortune, right?
1: Yeah. And he signs the, he literally signs a contract with the devil to be able to have his fame and fortune and, and wealth. Right.
0: Right. Which sort of contextualizes that prayer at the end, because it's kind of an exorcism, isn't it?
1: Yes. Oh, it's a fantastic way of looking at it. I mean, the whole time you're wondering what kind of, especially if you don't know demonic literature, like if you don't know all these devil figures that have pre, you know, prefigured this moment, you may not recognize Art Immelman until he says, drive this son of a bitch hence. And of course, Immelman gets kind of sucked into a vacuum of outer space, in a in a sense, like he gets pulled away, um, like he really was a demonic figure that is exorcised from Tom Moore.
0: Right, and that's kind of, um, I mean that that's that's sort of the climax of the novel, and mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll just ask you outright. I always feel like Walker Percy doesn't know how to end his novels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like like some people are really good at that and I feel like Percy just not so much.
1: Well, I think it's – but you know what? I also think it's part of his true philosophy, right, that um, we are always in process. So any sense of ending is unreal. And if you're a mimetic novelist that's trying to imitate the world we live in, how hard is it to write an ending when we don't yet know the ending of the story? you know, all of us are in the middle of things. And uh, so for Percy, he can kind of create a story of beginnings and he can play out the process of the middle, but he knows that Tom Moore is not done. I mean, that's why Percy writes sequels. I mean, two of his six novels are sequels because he's just trying to figure out um, what happens next and what happens next. And it's a story that just keeps on telling. And, and even with the movie goer, he has an epilogue, right? I mean, so there's this sense of like, okay, the story is going to continue. How do you write about someone whose story is past one moment because all of this, okay. So the movie goer takes place, Mardi Gras, like it takes place in only a few days. Um, and then you have, um, love in the ruins, July 4th through July 1st. I mean, he writes it kind of backwards. We start July 4th and then he kind of unpacks what came before. And so it takes place just in a few days. And then the ending is five years later, Christmas Eve. So we're we're back to a Christmas Eve story to kind of redo, you know, the moment where he committed suicide, you know, attempted suicide, um, and you get to see him different, and you get to contrast that, but to just have July 5th, I think Percy feels like that would just be left wanting, like, we want to know, is is this figure going to live, right? Um, The world has not ended, and the whole book, he was wondering, like, would I be happier if the world ended or if it didn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a strange question, but it's a very in question. Um, are we going to be happier if the bomb falls or if it doesn't? And right. And so you have to kind of see him five years later, living out Christmas Eve again and, and see how he responds to it.
0: Tom Moore is really fascinating figure. Cause on the one hand he is so wrongheaded, right? He thinks he has this material solution to a spiritual problem. But on the other hand, he's actually really good at diagnosing what's wrong with people. Um, So there are these sort of two poles um, or kind of two extremes that people gravitate towards. There's angelism on the one hand and bestialism on the other. And I wondered if you could say something about what he thinks those are and why people um, are so easily tempted by these kinds of false views.
1: Right. And I think that he wouldn't assume that some people are just angels and some people are beasts. I think the confusing part is that we are such disintegrated selves, right, to use Augustine's language, that we are always acting on, in both directions. So in the angelism idea, we're spiritual beings. Um, we want to get in touch with the divine. We want to be like the romantics and run around in nature and... um really get in touch with another presence, a higher order of things, and be abstracted beings, right? Souls and not bodies. And then on the other side, we recognize we're bodies. And so we're drawn to eating great food all the time for every single meal. And um, sex can't get you know enough of, of sexual literature and sex in our advertising and sex in our lives. And um, so there's this sense of like, Sex makes us feel alive, and eating makes us feel alive, or working out makes us feel alive, and we just want to be bodies. So, Percy just talks about this constant terror because we don't understand how the two go together, right? And so, he blames Descartes and saying, Okay, Descartes told us that we're two different entities and that these entities never meet. We are either spirits or bodies, right? Um, But that doesn't seem to fit our human experience. There's something about being embodied souls it maybe feels more real, that it feels more like the things we do in our soul affect our body and the ways that we use our body affect our soul. And how do we live with those two in combination with one another? And of course, this is why Tom Moore is drawn to the sacraments of the Catholic Church. If he eats Christ's body, he can then live again in the world, right? Because he's an embodied soul again.
0: Right. And that, that is kind of a huge theme, I think, in both the moviegoer and Love in the Ruins, it's sort of like the recognition of the Eucharist as this um, place where, you know, the transcendent and the material or the spiritual and the material are united, like in such an obvious way. And I think it's sort of, um, it's sort of like always there, but then again, not there. Like he sort of can't really... Um, I think the trick or the hard thing um, that most of his characters are trying to figure out is like how you live in the everyday, like in the normal moments, in the um, and you know go- going to mass, receiving the sacraments. This is like a very normal thing on the one hand, if you're Catholic, um, but then on the other hand, it's just, it's like this incredibly sublime spiritually alive thing. Um, and I think, I think part of it is trying to find, yeah, trying, trying to find out how to live, um, maybe as, as you said, both, both angel and beast, both animal and, you know, uh, spiritual creature. And, um, I think, I think some of his stuff on self-knowledge and self-consciousness is sort of exploring this um like I mean I'm interested in what you think because I know that you're writing about this right now but like um when I read Lost in the Cosmos I sort of thought it was like trying to explain different kinds of false self-consciousness like like different ways of being in the world that are, are that are like Obviously off. And so it's like a series of, of different diagnoses. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, he says, like, we are unknown, we knowers ours to ourselves, right? He quotes Nietzsche in the beginning of the book and just saying, the, the big question for us all the time is, is who are we and what are we, right? So we've lost all ability to have any authoritative answer to this question. And this idea that we're just autonomous selves who make up the answer to that question actually list, just leaves us lost right? We don't know how to make up a satisfactory answer that explains both these feelings of transcendence we have, but also these bodily urges, um, especially without the old paradigms. And Percy does a really clever thing in Lost in the Cosmos um, by creating aliens to observe us. So there's a lot of like fun little anecdotes and stories that take place in Lost in the Cosmos where aliens are questioning earthlings about who they are. And so you're getting to see a stranger perspective on the self. And the aliens classify uh, human beings as either, you are either C1, C2, or C3. So he's lost this sense of like, you're either innocent and unfallen, pre-lapsarian, which that language means so little to anybody anymore, Um, or you are fallen, right? Post-lapsarian creatures, or you are redeemed, C3. And so he puts it in new classification so that you can see it more clearly. Like, are you someone who has no sin in your life and no guilt? No murderous impulses, no sexual impulses um, that are, you know, astray. Like is that who you are? C one. And of course none of us can answer that. We're none of us are C one, right? Um, so then the question becomes like, well, are we C2? Are we just full of this desire to kill and destroy and uh false ideas of love and sex? Um, well, that seems pretty accurate for the majority of us. Okay. But if we can say yes to that question, that that's who we are, C two, then we are already C threes because we've admitted then who we are. We know ourselves, and thus we're ready for hope and redemption. Um, And so that's what Percy always wants people to see: is he wants to see like, let me hold up a mirror to you, and show you who you are, and not leave you there. Like you said, he writes satire with hope at the end, um, that you can finally know yourself, and then ask for the gift of faith or ask for. Uh, the next step, the next move, once you know who you are again.
0: Yeah. So how how do you think that we come to know who we really are? I mean, suppose that I suppose that I come to this recognition, you know, that yeah, I am self-deceived or whatever. Um, well, that seems like not enough, right? To know that you're wrong isn't exactly to see what's right. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you come to have self-knowledge finally, given how difficult he thinks it is?
1: Well, I this is the way that I try to explain it um, with Percy, because some people are left unsatisfied by his indirect approach to these questions. But what I think that Percy's doing is is quite savvy, because um, what he does is he says, okay, here we are. Let me hold up a mirror to you. You're fallen. You're sick. Let me diagnose your disease. You're diseased. Um, you don't think that you can be cured by God. You've thrown out that option. Well, let me show you a page of different prescriptions. And uh, one of the prescriptions will be God, and it has a line through it. We're just going to leave it on the page. I'm not going to read that option, but it's still going to be there. Let's go through and cross out all the other possibilities, right? And so that's what he does in Lost in the Cosmos. He asks you a series of like self-help questions. Um, do you think that you feel better when you do this? No, you don't? Okay. What about when you do this? no it it only lasts for a little while and doesn't fix it entirely okay so he goes through options of like do you if you travel do you feel like you know who you are again well yeah for a little bit like it's a little bit of a, a high a transcendence a way of seeing yourself um but as he crosses out every option it's kind of like tipping over every sacred cow until there's only one standing and it's that option you thought was not a reality it's It's God. It's the Catholic Church for Percy. And it's the only thing left standing after Percy tipped everything over. So his goal is that he's diagnosed you and then he's shown you the cure by via negativa by leaving the only option left that he hasn't talked about.
0: Well, I love it because I mean it's it's this this book Lost in the Cosmos is so hilarious, um, and it's just a send up of the self help genre, which is it really has to be the worst genre of writing ever. But it's so brilliant because, of course, the reason why it's the last self help book is that what it reveals is you can't help yourself. Actually,
1: you can't help yourself exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is Tom Moore at the end of *Love in the Ruins*, right? Save me, somebody else. Like, I can't save myself. I don't even know who I am. You know, someone else had to tell me who I am, which means someone else has to tell me how
0: to fix myself, like, or how to be fixed. That's right. right. I think I think *Glass in the Cosmos* is is really brilliant in that way, and you know, for Americans in particular, because the, the sort of it's so baked into being an American that you can fix yourself that you can, you know, I mean, just go read your Ben Franklin. You know, he was like the original self-help guy. Like he was the guru. Um, And it's like, look, if you just, if you just work hard at it and you set your goals, then you're going to be great. And uh, you know, obviously Percy is extremely doubtful of these projects, but it's also just really hilarious. And um and I, and I think another thing that is so brilliant about Lost in the Cosmos is he's so good at implicating the reader. You know, you read it and you just have to laugh at yourself. <laughs> just like, okay, so I guess since we're running out of time a little bit, well, I should just ask you, is there anything else in the novel uh, that you wanted to highlight or talk about in particular that we missed?
1: You know, one of Percy's big things, like you're mentioning with the self-help book, is this idea of the autonomous self. and I think what Percy's pointing out is how inaccurate it is to reality, right? Like you're born based on somebody else, not your own doing. So you're given this gift of life and then you die and you have no control over where you're going. And you spend most of your life dependent on other people, whether you want to admit it or not, just for your very sustenance and being. So this idea that you can kind of make up your own world individually by yourself and what the world means and what words mean for Percy. He's just completely opposed to that sense. And he thinks that the way to, to get at this with people is through language. So just to go back again to something else you've said, um, for him, all language is a communication between people. You can't have a language that only you understand or else it's not language. Right. Um, so, to write about, so even to write about things or speak self-referentially is not communication. So the fact that communication must take place with another person agreeing about the meaning of a word and as it pertains to another object, right, that the sign has um, sort of a signified with it, this to him is a way of pointing out to, him, out to us our inability to just be individual autonomous selves.
0: So I think that's what he's trying to do. I don't know how much Wittgenstein he read, but I mean that—that that is the stuff of the private language argument, um, you know, and the and the Philosophical Investigations. And uh, Wittgenstein is very clear that language is bound up with forms of life. Um, and so, to to learn a language is to be initiated into a form of life. So Wittgenstein says things like, "Well, if a lion started to speak, we couldn't possibly understand it, right? Um, because we're not lions. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and we'd have to like sort of mm-hmm. be initiated into the yeah. lion life before we could make or right. tales of it." Um, right. So I think the lion I, wouldn't speak
1: know, poetry. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it is the lion would speak very straightforwardly about like a chair as a chair. A, you know, a lion's not going to talk about a chair as meaning life and death, right? Or having some metaphorical meaning beyond itself that you can kind of create and speak figuratively about things. I mean, that's the other part of the key in human language for Percy is our ability to speak figuratively and creatively um, with our words.
0: Right. And I think you know this false self image that we have of ourselves as you know completely. Uh, so we're we're sort of first and foremost autonomous individuals, and then like maybe we decide we have reasons to like around other people or, and this is, I mean, um, I, I don't think we can blame Descartes for this, um, but it's certainly, again, it's kind of like baked into the American political tradition. I mean, if you think about somebody like John Locke. Um, well, he's a philosopher in this tradition that thinks of the human person as first and foremost an autonomous individual who maybe has reasons, right, to consent to government.
1: (laughs) Right, but not a responsibility to others.
0: Well, but it's, I mean, but just on a more basic level, I think, you know, Percy would think, uh, and I would think, this is just, this is self-deception. You're not first and foremost an autonomous individual. You're first and foremost a mewling puking baby who's not going to last two minutes unless somebody helps you. And you don't really become, I mean, you're, you're born a human, but you don't become like a human in the rich sense until we initiate you into the language and the social practices and like we cultivate virtue in you and all these things Um, and you didn't do that yourself (laughs) you can't do it yourself Um, and so yeah it's this it's this incredibly self-deceived picture of ourselves um, that's even i mean it's so strong now where we think we determine we determine everything regardless of what looks like anything about objective reality, you know, it's, it's all socially determined all the way down. Um,
1: Well, and I think this is, this is where his book, although really funny is always deadly serious. You talked about the Art Immelman figure as the demonic, right? And what I think Percy is trying to hint at is that when we have this level of self-deception in which we make our world, what we want it to be versus what it is, It's the same thing that um, Milton Satan did in Paradise Lost where he said, I'm going to make a heaven, you know, a hell of heaven or heaven of a hell. And so that I'm going to just create my reality to be what it is that I say it is despite what it actually is. Right. And it's a demonic impulse to say, I'm going to create myself. I'm going to decide what my world is going to be. I was not created, right? I have no authority to any, or I have no look to anything above me. Um, and, and so this is just a satanic impulse. And so that's why you have this like demonic spirit kind of functioning in Percy's novel that he, he's warning us against this, that this ultimately this level of pride, when it becomes this self, self-deceptive becomes demonic. And that's, that's why you have the violence, and that's why you have the extremes, um, the apocalypse. Like, we're going to just destroy everything if we live this way.
0: Can I ask you what your favorite Walker Percy novel is?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, for a long time, it was Lancelot. Uh, not, not, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say... Uh, for a long time, it was The Last Gentleman. The only one I hate is Lancelot. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like Lancelot either. I hate, I hate that book. I hate that book so much. Um, even writing on it, it's just, it's, but, you know, I get Percy's point. Like, that book is so disturbing. He's trying to be like, okay, if you're disturbed by this, there's still hope that you're human. And it's just so dark. Um, but I love Last, Last Gentleman mostly because of the ending of The Last Gentleman, which I won't ruin for people who haven't read it. Um, but it's one of those books that just, I mean, I could read the whole ending aloud again and again and again, you talk about this responsibility to others, you talk about the mystery, um, at death, like you watch, you know, the you watch a death (laughs) and it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful journey of the sacraments. It's so funny. It's written like a, a parody of the odyssey, um, set in the South, um, it's its discussion of uh, race relations is fantastic um i think percy just does such a great job of capturing problems that didn't end in the 60s um so we can still read it now and have as much resonance now uh so i you know last gentleman probably for a long time was was my favorite i've gotten more questions about love in the ruins because of this crazy political world we're currently in and so i've been I've been spending a long t- a lot of time with Love in the Ruins more. So I'm I'm falling in love with it more the more that I I teach and talk about it. So it's becoming close close to my heart. So.
0: Yeah, I do think Love in the Ruins is sort of the most timely, but I, and this is my last question, because um, somebody asked me the, this question recently, and I and I felt stumped, and I probably gave the wrong answer, um, insofar as there is a right or wrong answer here, but somebody asked me, they'd never read any Walker Percy, and so they were like, well, what should I read first? Um and I think I said, don't read us novels first, read Lost in the Cosmos. Because if you read really? Lost in the Cosmos, it's like a blueprint for understanding his novels. Do you
1: agree with that? Oh, 100%. Yes. And I, I will say though, it's a difficult... So I actually gave it to my husband who had read Walker Percy. I do think it's hard to read because like you said, it is so ingrained in us that we are autonomous selves. And that book says, hey, maybe you're not. (laughs) And that maybe to live that way is not a good way to live. And so because it's really like, pointing at you, it's so direct that sometimes that can be a little painful to be like poked at the entire time. Um, So you have to have an ability, I I would say, like, start with Lost in the Cosmos, but have an ability to laugh at yourself and to realize, like, he's poking fun at himself and at you, and we're all in this together trying to figure out who we are. So this is not just, like, him standing from a place of height, you know, above us saying, like, look at you. You're all so wrong.
0: No, if you, if you can't laugh at yourself, there's really no hope for you. Right? Well, on that note, thank you so much. This was so fun. Um, and I was just really glad to talk about Walker Percy, one of my favorites.
1: Well, you are a phenomenal reader of Percy. I was very, I'm very impressed with how much insight you have. Oh, well, his work. you know, um,
0: I did it, spend it like great. two years <laughs> trying to figure this man out. So, <laughs> well,
1: you got, you got him. You got him. I was, it was a great conversation to talk to someone who really loves him and understands
0: him. You have been listening to the sacred and profane love podcast hosted by me, Jennifer Frey. This podcast is financially supported by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, with technical support provided by William Detheridge, who is a student at CUA. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and 1. Subscribe to our feed over on SoundCloud, 2. Share your favorite episodes with your friends. Three, give us a favorable review on iTunes. And four, like and follow us on Facebook, where you can also give us feedback and keep up with the latest news about our project. You can find the podcast online at soundcloud.com slash sacred and profane love on Facebook at facebook.com slash sacred and profane love or over on the virtue blog. That's the virtueblog.com.